so tonight we're not jumping into a series. I kind of just want to do a standalone talk on, on God's love. And I wanted to speak to you on this kind of topic specifically because I don't think we have an accurate understanding of, real, of really what God's love is. Now, I think that's a problem, right? Because when we fail to understand what God's love is, I think, I think we'll, we'll start to cherish things, uh, devote our lives around uh, things that we're not supposed to. And, and in fact, we'll even long for things that will actually never satisfy our heart. And even, and one of the things we're going to be talking about today, attach ourselves to ideas, bad ideas, and even maybe people and bad people that are going to leave us kind of incomplete and, and lacking. Now, many of you, you probably know this because you've experienced this in some sense of the way. You, maybe you finally got the job that your college said you would get if you spent $100,000 there and did all the SAT, whatever, do all the stuff you needed to do, right? And uh, when you got that job, you got that income, you still kind of felt stuck and unsure that this was what you were supposed to be doing. And so now you're struggling with, with purpose. Or maybe, maybe it's like no matter what you do or what you accomplish, you always feel like you're not enough. And there's really nothing you can do to make yourself feel good about yourself. Or lastly, maybe you walk around with this deep sense of inner loneliness and you bought maybe into the lie, right, that if you can get into some type of romantic relationship, then you're going to, everything will be all right. It'll, it'll make you whole or some sense of the way. Now, this last week I was camping. I brought, um, so the last two weeks I haven't been here, I went to junior high camp in Hume, San Diego, and then Hume, Ponderosa. <laughs> Woo! Cool. Uh, uh, and, I, and I took a bunch of high schoolers up, up north um, to the mountains. I'm toast right now. I'm so toast. But, uh, it's always one of like just the, like the most hilarious kind of like psychological studies to like watch these ninth graders, like these ninth grade boys, like somehow like develop legs and like just waddle over to these like attractive girls that they want to start talking to. It is so cringy, but so good, right? Like watching them hug. Oh my, it just makes you want to just melt inside, right? And so, <laughs> no, it's, it's like, I pr okay, let me share a story. So one specific ninth grader, we're going to call him Ben. It's not his real name. Uh, ben. It's close to it. Um, so he wakes me up at like 1 a.m. in the morning, right? And, uh, and Austin and I are there. And, uh, and, and this is what he says. He says, Matt, what does it mean when a girl touches your butt? I'm like, real deep philosophical questions, bro. Like, uh, I said, Ben, it means she is the one, right? Like, <laughs> it's like, really? I was like, no, bro, run. Like, run. Do you like, what are you doing, dude? <laughs> and so, uh, and so then he begins to kind of go into the, he starts, you know, telling me how he, what he said. He says, I just feel complete standing next to her. And he said, you know, my stomach felt, you know, all bubbly when I see her. And I was like, bro, you probably should have gas, dude. Like, relax. <laughs> like, here's some Pepto-Bismol, like, kick it, dude. And so uh, he went on and on in great detail to describe what she looked like. She, she wore um, pajama pants all week, and he really thought that was attractive. And I was like, cool, dude. Uh, cool, cool, cool. And uh, I said, um, all right, all right, so, uh, uh, well, you know, you're going into great detail about who she is, her height, her, you know, what she wants to do for the rest of her life, and her emotional status. Uh, <laughs> well, what's her name, dude? And he goes, shoot, <laughs> I forgot. I was like, so I like flipped on the oven because I don't have to roast this kid. I was like, wait, dude, you, this girl completes you, but you can't even complete the spelling of her name? Like, are you kidding me right now, right? And I was, I was dying. I thought it was so funny. Now, we all laugh at stories like that, at least I do, like all the time, right? That's my favorite part about doing student ministries here, as I just get to meet kids like this. And, and, and I laugh at stories like this. I think we laugh at stories like this. But may, may I diagnose your problem? Because I think it's the same as this ninth grade boy named Ben. And that is that he thinks this relationship is going to make him whole. 
Just like you think a relationship is going to make you whole, or, or your job, or your purpose, or, or money, or having nice things is going to make you into some type of whole person. See, there are more people going through a divorce at this church right now that have everything the American dream has to offer, but they're living in their own hell. And their own personalized hell, they have, they have the car, the money, the job, the family, the two and a half dogs, the two and a half, not dogs, kids, the one dog. <laughs> What's it like, a corgi? What is that two and a half? Anyways, uh, I don't know, that's, that's it. I swear you Google, it's like two and a half kids. You're like, what is that, like a short kid, like a midget? What is it? I don't know. We're going on a tangent. All right. Uh, they have everything that like is, is designed to sh- like say, if you get these things, you'll have happiness or you'll have fulfillment or satisfaction and yet they're... The, all of them would say that their lives are miserable right now. So the big question I want to talk about today is what is the only thing, the only thing that can bring satisfaction to the human heart that can in some way arrest the longings that exist with inside the human heart or the human equation? And so the answer to that is simple, but it's actually really profound. The answer to that question is the love of a heavenly father. That is the only thing that will arrest the longings contained inside the human heart. But see, the reality is, and, and I say this often in, in student ministries here, is we all have spiritual daddy issues. It's kind of funny, but we, we all, we, in reality, is that we all have spiritual daddy issues that stem from really a lack of an understanding of how loved you and I, we really are by our heavenly dad. You know, when I think about love, it's kind of like an interesting topic, especially in our culture. It's been diluted and perverted and full of lust, and, and, and I don't think we adequately have a good concept, at least an ideological or a theological concept of what love really is. And when I think about even the English language, right, I think it does us a huge disservice because I can like love my, I can love my wife and I love Oreos. Both are true, but you get there's a difference there, right? Now, in many ways, like I said, I think the English diction, the language has done us a disservice because as we talk about the type of love that God has for us, there's only one word to describe it. But that's not how it always was in the Septuagint. That was what the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And um, in, in that language, there's actually four words that describe love. The first is uh, phileo, and that's the type of love of a friendship. It's like an estorge, and this is the love that, uh, that a member of a family, family members have for each other. The third is eros. This is like the, uh, the passionate romantic, the one most depicted in movies, right? The Fifty Shades of Weird, like all that type of, you know, love. It's kind of the love that says, like, it makes you want to say, like, I love you. And then last, what we're talking about today is agape. And this is this unconditional love that God has for you and that God has for me. And what's interesting for us to note tonight, and what I want to spend some time talking about, is this is the only out of the four Greek words for love that's a verb. And what that means is it's demonstrated. And so tonight, what I want to do is give us maybe a new perspective on God's love and how God has loved us. And I want to do that by taking you through my favorite story in all of Scripture. And I, uh, I did this at Young Adults probably about 16 months ago. Sorry if you were here. Um, uh, we're doing a little different tonight, but it's my, my all-time favorite story in Scripture. And it's the historical account of God using this, this man who lived thousands of years ago to demonstrate his love uh, for Israel and, and, and for really all, all mankind. And so there's two questions that I want you guys to keep in the back of your mind tonight as we journey through this Old Testament chronicle, this Old Testament story. And the first question I want you to kind of keep in the back of your mind is this. Who am I in the story? Right? Who am I in this story? It's essential that you and I grasp who we are in the story. There's two main characters that I'm going to introduce to you tonight. And I want you to find who you are in the story. The, the second question I want you to answer is this. Who is God in the story? Right? So who am I in the story? Who is God in the story? So let me kind of set the scene for you where, for where we're kind of going tonight. This all begins in the late 700 B.C.s. 
about 750 years before the birth of Christ. This is just after King Solomon's death, and his kingdom was divided in two. Now, in the southern kingdom, it was called Judea or Jerusalem, it was under a man named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was uh, Solomon's successor. And, and what we need to know about this is he kind of remained faithful um, in following Yahweh, following God, and so God kind of blessed them and things along those lines. But now in the northern kingdom was a man named Jeroboam, and he wasn't a godly king. He wasn't a good man. This was Israel. And they plunged themselves into idolatry, the worshiping of other gods. Now, what's really interesting about this northern kingdom, Israel, is they began to kind of experience material prosperity unequaled since the days of Solomon. So if you owned a business or whatever it may be, it was the best of times. The Tao was at the highest. Everything was, was the best that it could possibly be. But they sank to the, the lowest ebb of immorality, and they began to worship all of these other gods that, that Yahweh said don't worship. And so it also looked like, from God's perspective and point of view, like the worst of times. Now, into this crazy wor- world was this, this man... 750 years before the birth of Christ, who was so full of this illogical, unmathematical type of love that was born, and his name was Hosea. Now, Hosea was a prophet. Now, prophets had some interesting jobs, but basically they were chosen by God to do some pretty great things. And God assigns Hosea specifically to be a a speaker um, to Israel. And so God basically comes to him one day and says, Hosea, I'm going to demonstrate my love for Israel through you to this backsliding, adulterous nation who's, who's wandering off, who's distracted, who said that they would follow me, but it's doing everything they possibly could to reject the covenant, the promise that we made together. I'm going to use you, Hosea, to this nation to demonstrate that I still love them. And he's like, all right, well, how are you going to do that? Now, every prophet was employed by God to do some pretty interesting things. They all had really, really interesting job descriptions. But I dare say that, that Hosea's was, was the worst. Now, all prophets were, were to be, in some sense of the way, bearer of bad news. I don't know if you've ever been a bearer of bad news before. Um, and I have. I have I, been present at, at, at people's, um, and to tell kids that their, their parents have passed away and things along those lines. Being a bearer of bad news is never like a, a fun or a good uh, job. Uh, one time, I was, uh, I was speaking um, in junior high. I think I've shared this story here before. And it's, I'm doing a Christmas series. It's like the first year I became the junior high pastor like eight years ago seven years ago. And uh, I'm on stage, and I'm, t- I'm telling the story about how, how one day I thought, boom, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trap Santa Claus. I'm going to put him in my closet, and so it's going to be Christmas every morning, right? And so I come up with this whole plan. It's December 24th. I go under the, under the tree, and I have my dad's handcuffs. And like when the second, you know, Santa puts his hand down there, I'm going to handcuff him, throw him in my closet. That was the whole plan, right? So I wake up at one o'clock in the morning, see this white guy, put his hand down there, handcuff him, pull him down. It's my dad. And I'm like, you're not Santa Claus. Now, as I'm sharing this story in front of a bunch of junior high kids, there's a kid in the back that goes, your dad's Santa Claus? I'm like, what? And then on the, in the back corner, this, this kid goes, a little sixth grader stands up and goes, wait, Santa's not real? And I was like, what? And he's like, what do you mean? And so he just starts bawling and sprints out the door. And I was like, yo. I was like, is that real? Are you guys like punking me right now? I'm going to like Ashton Kutcher to come out. Like, what's going on, right? And, and, and so I get this longest email from the, the parents that day, and I'm like, dude, you're a parent. She's like, how dare you? This is like my responsibility to tell my kid that Santa's not real. I'm like, yo, your kid's like 13. Like, you're a, I should call CPS. Like, you're terrible, right? Like, this kid's getting bullied at school. Like, how dare you? Like, what? Like, I'm the bad. What? No, you're bad, right? So most prophets, they had it pretty rough, about as rough as I had it that day. And uh, I dare say that Hosea's job was the most interesting. God says, all right, Hosea, are you listening? Here is your assignment. Are you listening, Hosea? And he's like, yeah, I'm listening. He's like, I want you, Hosea, 
prophet of Israel, holy and godly man, to marry, it's like, sick, a, cool, prostitute. Huh? Like, <laughs> what? He's like, yeah, I want you, Hosea, to marry a prostitute. And he goes, wait, wait, come again. A, a, a prostitute? And it says this, it says the book of Hosea, chapter 1, verse 2. So when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For an, like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he marries a prostitute. What's her name? Well, you think it's going to be like destiny? It's not. It's <laughs> like Carmel. It's not. It is. <laughs> Your name's Carmel. I'm sorry. Uh, or destiny. Uh, or hope or anything. Um, her name, Gomer. Not a hot name, right? <laughs> uh, say, dude. Like, no, it's not. Right? Like, Gomer is her name, right? Which is her name. Now, for a while, right, for a while, things go, go good, right? They have three kids, and God says, yo, I'm going to bless you with three kids, but I'm going to name your three kids, all right? And he's like, all right, like, why do you want to name my kids? But sure, he's like, yeah, I'll let you name my kids. So they have these three kids, and, and God says, I'm going to name these kids as reminders of the broken relationship I am having with my people. And so the three names are this, and my baby boy's name is Jezreel, and it literally translates in Hebrew as God will slaughter, which is a cool name. Uh, in fact, it's the site of a huge massacre, the largest massacre in Israel's history. Up, it'd be like the equivalent of naming your kid like Hiroshima. I mean, just like this like hideous name, right? Like Twin Tower or something. And then, uh, <laughs> then, then there's a baby girl, and her name is Lo Ruhama, which means not loved, which is uh, she's probably going to align in the same career path as your mom. Uh, and then, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, it may probably happen. Uh, well, you can pray for me later. Then. Then they have, they, have a, they have another baby boy, and his name is Lo-Ami, and it literally means not mine, or translated in Hebrew better. It's uh, not my people, or I am not your God, right? So these are the names that God gives these three kids. Now, the Bible doesn't say when, but maybe four or five years into it, Hosea wakes up, turns over, and sees that Hosea is not there. So he's like moving around the covers, Hosea, or, uh, Gomer's not there. So he's like, he goes down, and Gomer's not in the kitchen making Cheerios for the kids, right? So he's like, where, where, you know, where is she, right? So he goes in the backyard, yelling her name. Nowhere is Gomer to be found. Wakes up the, the three kids and says, hey, not loved. Where's your mom, right? And uh, he's like, I don't know. I think she bounced. Uh, right? And so now he has no idea where, where Gomer is. And so he kind of waits till nightfall and goes to the police. And then, you know, no, in a few days, a few weeks, she's gone, right? So now Hosea is this single dad now with, you know, three kids. Eventually, right, maybe a few weeks or months into it, the Bible doesn't give us an adequate time frame, God comes back to Hosea and says, Hosea, I know where she is. Oh, 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 great. Like, has she been abducted? Like, what happened to her, you know? And God says, Hosea, I want you to go find her where you first found her and then marry her again. Wait, wait, what? God, I, I first found her when she was, like, on Beach Boulevard. I mean, when she was, like, selling herself. Like, what, what are you? <laughs> Nothing against Beach Boulevard. But, like, <laughs> I hear sketchy. I've never been. Uh, but, like, what do you mean? Like, what, what do you mean? Like, you want me to go find her where I first found? She was prostituting herself out. What do, you, what do you mean, God? And he said, yeah, I want you to go. I want you to go back. I want you to find her where you first found her. It says this in Hosea 3. The Lord said to me, go show your life, your love, I'm sorry, to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the, love of, as the Lord loves the Israelites, so they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. There's nothing wrong with like birthday cakes. What he's saying is like uh, the cakes were like a symbol of idol worship to other gods. Now, as I've done some studying and, and listened to some commentaries, and one good talk on this is by a pastor named Judah Smith. Some of the stuff comes from tonight. 
I've learned that there's basically one philosophical view of love that Israel kind of entered into, had at this kind of season of time, and that is that they thought love was simply the pursuit of self-gratification. Now, they would never say that, but there definitely was a subconscious uh, bias or understanding of it. This is what love is like. And that's kind of eerily similar to the world we live in, right? That's kind of what Tinder is all about, right? It's, most people are there to hook up, not really move those relationships towards marriage in any sense of the way. And I read that and, and, and thought more about the love that Israel defined and what they thought of, and I thought, wow, that sounds like a lot sounds a lot like the love that we have been brainwashed to believe what love really is today in the 21st century world. That love is about the pursuing of our own desires, or that love is a fantasy. And when, when that other individual isn't making you feel like they did when you first got with them, then that you can divorce them, you can leave them, because it's all about you. It's all about the, the, the self and, and your pursuit and how you're feeling and are you happy. And so God steps into the equation. He says, this is not love. This is not at all what I intended for love to look like or for you to define it or use the word. And so he says, I'll show you, I will demonstrate to my people what love truly is. And so God comes to Hosea and says, Hosea, I want you to go find her where you first found her. I want you to picture this kind of crazy story with me. Hosea is this known man of God who during the day would have been most likely preaching in the synagogues, answering people's questions, helping lead Bible studies and things along those, those lines. And at night, be at strip clubs and brothels, asking outside, begging people who were walking in, knowing that those people potentially could be sleeping with his wife. Hey, is, is, is Go, have you seen Gomer in there? Hey, if you see Gomer, could you just tell her that I, I miss her, I, I love her, and if, if she could just come out, I'd love to talk with her. I'd love to talk to her. So now he has to go search for his wife where no man of God should be, let alone Israel's prophet. I can imagine, right, like, as he's standing at the door to a strip club, hearing some of those songs. I can imagine as, like, people are walking in, Hosea, like, what are you doing with Gomer? Like, wh wh why are you, like, up, like, why are you, like, allowing this girl to hurt you? Why are you connected to this girl who wants nothing to do with you? Who's, who's prostituted herself out again? Who's sleeping with other men? Why? What, why? Why do you care for her? Why would a holy man of God be in, be in love with such a person like her? And I imagine he would say something like this. How can such a holy God, a mighty God, be in love with, with such people like us? So I think about this story, and as the pages of it continue to go, eventually he finds Gomer. And what most commentators and theologians say is that he finds her while she's back on the selling block. Most scholars believe that he literally walks in, and she's being sold for the night. So he walks up to what a modern-day pimp would be, and he points over to Gomer as she's being paraded. Hey, that, that, that's, uh, that, that's my wife. I mean, you, you see the ring on my finger and the, the one on hers? Yeah, yeah, like that, that means like we're together. It means that we made a, a covenant, a promise, a, to be connected, to, to, to not be unfaithful. Like, that, like, that, like she's mine and, I, and I'm hers. And pimp would have said, I, I don't care who this is to you. This is, this is the price. So finally he goes, well, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll pay for what's already mine. As it ends up happening, he ends up paying 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley. What's interesting about this is it's actually the price of a slave. So he's not buying her for a night. He's actually buying her out of sex slavery and back into a relationship and freedom. And he does all of this to buy back his wife who was already his. I think we would have to be poetically dim not to see Christ in this story. See, God is committed to the person who continually makes him the least of their priorities. 
the person who keeps choosing other things and the person who keeps giving God their leftovers of energy and time and everything else. See, 750 years after Hosea, God sends his son to die on a torture tool, to buy back what was already his. See, God uses Hosea to demonstrate to this backsliding nation of Israel that he isn't leaving them, that he is committed, rather, uh, as a good husband, that he's committed and just wants her back. So I ask you the question, who's Hosea in the story? The Hosea, Hosea in the story is Jesus. And that makes Gomer you and me. See, how often do I say I follow Christ and live as if I don't even have a relationship with him? How often do I give God my leftovers when he gives me everything? See, in the book of Hosea, chapter 13, verse 6, is my favorite passage and in, in, in verse in all of the Old Testament. It's when I fed them, they became proud. And when they became proud, they became satisfied and then forgot about me. How often... Do I forget about how good God has been to me? And because he's been so good, I get distracted and abandon him once everything is going as it should once again. So one of the reasons I had it on, the, on my heart to kind of share this with you tonight, and, and we're not going too long tonight. The thing I, I wanted to communicate to you is that you need to understand that the only thing that's going to ever make you whole is knowing and experiencing God's love. That there is nothing this side of heaven that will arrest the longing in your hearts and in my heart. No relationship, position in a company, or zeros in your bank account will do that. See, earlier I gave you the meanings of the kids' names. Let me quickly just give you the names, or, or the, the meanings of, of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea means salvation. That's what it translates to in Hebrew. Gomer means completion. So what is the meaning of this story? The meaning is when you find Hosea, that is Jesus. When you find Jesus, you need nothing because you are complete. See, the only one that can satisfy the human heart is the one who made it. And so God created a void in your heart and a void in my heart that's only his to fill. Now, some of you in this room today have given your life and your heart over to Jesus, but you're still empty. You feel like your life is meaningless, like it's boring and that it's, that it, that it's hard. And the reality is because you tried to fill your heart and your life with other things than him. And you've taken your eyes off of Christ and onto other things. That's why scripture so often talks about people who say they follow Christ. Many will say to me on this day, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And if you be honest, you know this. I mean, you're still trying to gain your, your, your value or sense of worth by your appearance, by your job status or position or your GPA or athletic ability or your dating status or whatever potentially it could be. So my challenge for you, if this is you, if you're a follower of Christ, be it there's this deep sense of inner loneliness or there's this deep emptiness is to identify the things that you're putting your identity in. People ask, like, oh, how do I know what I'm placing my identity in? Tell me what you spend your most time, your, your most money on, your most free time on, and what your idle mind thinks most about, and I'll tell you what you really worship. I'll tell you what you're really devoting most of your energies and capacities to. So my challenge for you is to identify the things that you're placing your identity in, and then repent of those things and say, God, I'm placing my identity in this relationship. I'm placing my identity in my job or my security of a job or my GPA or whatever it potentially could be. God, I want to give these things over to you. May you replace what, is, what I am placing my identity in with you. And then the second group of people I kind of want to end talking to are some of you today haven't actually given your life or heart over to Jesus. And I want you to know that there's a God that cares for you just like Hosea deeply cares for Gomer. But in 
if there's anything that this story shows, and I like this story and I like in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son story. Because if there's anything that those two stories show is that there is nothing you or I could do that could separate us from the love of God. And that's what scripture says. And actually in the book of Hosea, it uses this old English kind of term. And it says that we are the maiden of God's eye. We don't really know what that means anymore, but it means that when you get so close to somebody and you can see your reflection in their eye, you're the maiden of their eye. God says you, I, we are the maiden of God's eye. It means that he cherishes us. It means that he deeply loves us. And that he knows that your heart, my heart, will forever ache apart from him. And so my challenge for you, if you've never given your life over to Christ, is just to give him a chance. I'm sure you've been on the receiving end of not knowing, of someone not knowing you and judging you or not giving you a chance, and it sucks. My challenge for you tonight, and my prayer for you, is that you could just give him a chance in your life. And that'll give him the room he needs to do some miraculous and life-changing things in your life. So we end today. Here's what I want to communicate to you. That's what I want to get across. I think God is inviting you and me to understand that he loves you and I, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And that you and I are not defined by our mistakes or our mishaps, or the things that we should do and the things that we couldn't have done, but by, but by a God who loves you and wants you to know him. May your heart know that it's deeply loved so it need not to go search for love in the things of this world and end up hopeless and end up hurting. You know what these relationships look like. You were in them or you saw other friends back when they were in junior high or high school make this guy or this girl their everything. And so they give them their everything, abandoning their, their dignity or, or their innocence or whatever it may be, trying to cling on to some sense of worthiness or some, some, some sense of value, only to end up empty at the end of that. See, the Bible says that our relationship with God is like living water, that it's never-ending, that it's constantly nourishing to our soul. And so my prayer for you tonight is this, is that your heart knows how deeply, how deeply loved it is by a God that created all things. Let me pray for us. I'll get you out of here. Father, when I think about the story of, when I think about the story of Scripture, all 66 books, 40 authors, 3,500 years in three different languages and three different continents, it is the story of God, of you coming down, reaching your arm out to show us that you love us, show us that you care for us. How often, God, I forget that, or how often I chase on to other things to try to fill my heart, give me a sense of purpose or value, God, when I, I forget that the only thing that will satisfy the deep longings in my heart is you. So today, Father, if there are things in my heart and in my friends' hearts here, Father, that are inhibiting us from moving forward in, in who you want us to become and are robbing us, Father, of the peace, God, that you want us to have, may, you, may we be cognizant of those things, repent, and give those things over to you. Father, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.